Greetings again, everyone. When my grandson Michael was only about two years of age, he learned a little song on television, one of the kiddie shows, I guess, and he would take his little arms and kind of wave them in the air, and he would say, Don't worry, be happy! And then he would just start waving his arms, and he would get this big grin on his face, and he would be so filled with laughter and joy, and all of us would laugh our heads off at him and get him to do it again. And I don't think he learned the whole song, and I don't know where he heard it, but he continually went around saying, Don't worry, be happy. And that's the title of my sermon today. Don't worry, be happy. In the book of Deuteronomy, we read where it says that eternal, the eternal God is the God of Israel, and therefore they should be happy because he is the sword of their excellence. In Deuteronomy 33, 29. And in Psalm 127.5, God says that the man who has his quiver full of children, a big family, is a happy man. And in Psalm 144.15, happy is that people whose God is the eternal. Who is your God? Is he the God of Abraham? Yes. Is he the God of Isaac? Yes. Is he the God of Jacob? Yes. Is he the God of Elijah and Jeremiah and all of the prophets? Well, you know the answer to that. How big is God? How powerful is God? What is God like? What is his nature? What is his range of emotions when it comes to human foibles and mistakes? Is he a merciful God? Well, there's a psalm where it is kind of question and response and where the people follow their leaders in saying over and over and over again, reciting some of the historical events of the past, for his mercy endureth forever. Is he slow to anger? Is he eager to forgive? When you look at all of the troubles that we wade through every single week, when I look at all the letters we get every Friday morning, when I call my own sister and hear of the despair and the fear of her long protracted battle with cancer, when I hear of all of the other things going on in the world through national radio and television, and I hear of neighborhoods with crime and drugs and crack houses and all of the shootouts with police and the terrible mass murders that are being committed, hear of major sports figures being tried and convicted for rape of another young sports figure who had his entire life and perhaps multi-millions ahead of him named Len Bias dying of a drug overdose. I'm reminded of walking down the corridors of hospitals and nursing homes and hearing the moans and the cries of all of the afflicted, of the dying, of people who, as the Bible says, were all their lives subject through fear of death to bondage. The world is filled, is filled with such fear. The world is filled with such despair, with such loneliness, with such unhappiness. We had a letter on Friday, a woman who tearfully said that her husband had left her and kicked she and her kids out, and she said, would you please pray for me? I just want my family back. And I think of all of the hundreds of thousands, the literally millions of Americans that have undergone divorce. I think of the little children saying, don't leave me, Daddy, or don't leave me, Mommy, or Daddy, please don't hit Mommy anymore. And I think of all of the sadness there is in the world, and then I think in contrast sometimes of God's people. And I come to church or I go out to a far 
city in the United States for a personal appearance campaign, and I come in and I meet a lot of people who appear to be very sober, very somber, and very emotionally underdeveloped, afraid to express joy or happiness, because that belongs to Pentecostal people. The only people who are happy are the people who are faking it. The only people who are happy are the televangelists and all their audiences who appear to be up and bubbly and excited all the time. If I were to walk in here and say, good afternoon, all of you future rulers of the world, well, you'd say, well, there's old Ted trying to be dramatic again. But it wouldn't really ring a bell. If I were to call you princes and princesses, you would think, well, he's just spreading it on real thick like apple butter or jam or something and trying to make us feel good, but not really. Well, you know, when Queen Elizabeth brought up Prince Charles, and he was only about two and a half or three, and she was saying to him continually, Charles, you are different. You're not like other boys. You are a prince. Your father and your mother were the consort and the queen of England, and your grandfather was the king of England, and your grandmother was the queen mother and is the queen mother, still alive today, of the great nation of England. And she would have taught that young lad as he grew up about the background of the royal family, who and what they were, and how all the interrelated people of Europe that actually caused the rift between the Roman Catholic Church and brought about the emergence of the Anglican Church that brought about a Protestant church with a noble or a titled ruler at its helm, which indirectly, eventually, during the time of King John, led to the Magna Carta, which in itself indirectly led to the existence of democracy and the concept that all men are born equal and that all of us have certain inalienable rights that we can exercise. And that if it had not been for the kingly and queenly line of England, and David's own throne on this earth, we would not be living in a free land today. We know now that in Europe there are many nations struggling with a beginning concept of experimental democracy, and many of them are doomed to failure, and people are miserable, and they're unhappy, and they don't have any food, and they're standing in long lines in the snow outside of the shops all over Eastern Europe, and especially in the disintegrating Soviet Union, as it used to be called. And those are not bad people, and we don't hate those people. You see these elderly women we watched the other day, and women probably up in her 80s, and she'd come into a soup kitchen, and the Americans and other people had flown in a lot of food, and they were actually feeding them some hot soup. And here she was, hunkered down over her bowl. It was snowing outside, and we watched this elderly lady forking and spooning a little bit of soup into her mouth, and your heart goes out to them. They've never known freedom. I oftentimes have to look at the contrast of a person who is an American, not only an American living in Wonderland, USA, who does not have to show any papers to go from Kansas to Nebraska or from Texas to Arkansas, but a person who is in God's church. And the Apostle Paul said, consider your calling, brethren. And then he goes on to talk about our calling. So let's do that. Let's consider our calling. Remember the, uh, the poster back during World War I and later on repeated during World War II? They characterized Uncle Sam with a top hat and a candy-striped uh, red, white, and blue, and his fingers pointing, I want you. Now, if you can imagine that that is God the Father, 
and he is pointing a finger directly at you, and he looks down in the teeming masses of all of this world, and he says, I have decided I'm going to call you. And whatever set of circumstances in your background, in your life, that led you either to a radio program or a television program or through family or through friends or some contact some way or another that started your own mind working and made you go to your Bible and begin to open it up and look into it and look at these booklets or articles or magazines or listen to a sermon tape and begin to study and to compare. And it was a process. And little by little, certain pieces that seemed to be missing from the puzzle fell into place. And little by little, conviction came to you. And you began to believe. And you began to want to be saved. I think most of us approach salvation from mostly a negative point of view. We want to be rid of guilt. We want to be forgiven. But it is very difficult for us to grow on beyond that feeling which is sometimes tenuous and of which many times we are not completely sure and convinced, otherwise sometimes unprincipled and sometimes sincerely deceived ministers wouldn't be able to keep us in doubt of our salvation, wouldn't be able to preach sermons that make us feel like second-class inferior Christians who are simply never going to be in the kingdom of God because we don't know how to rule. We don't know how to be a judge. We don't know how to run the criminal justice system yet. We're not very intelligent. We don't have a great education. We don't read a hundred books a year. We don't understand a great deal about history. We can't wire a telephone switchboard. We probably can't run a computer. And so because we're not among the intelligentsia, there are many people who can make us feel very, very doubtful of our salvation. I think. Recently, we were talking, as a matter of fact, it was Friday morning in a meeting after our prayer breakfast, and someone brought up that subject. If you were asked the question, are you ready? Are you prepared right now today? Are you prepared to rule? How many hands would go up? Let's see them all go up, because you ought to know, yes, you are. You're prepared the instant somebody tells you a young man beat a woman to death with a bicycle chain here in Tyler, then went to the cops and confessed where she was, trying to save her, thought she might still be alive, went out there and found the woman was dead, then went back and the attorney argued he never should have confessed it in the first place, it was illegal, shouldn't be admitted, but a jury in Tyler convicted him and sentenced him to death. The appellate court in some other city overturned it, threw out the evidence, said, you're not supposed to know that. You're not supposed to know that he confessed that he beat that woman to death and raped her. So they threw that out. And he's a free man walking the streets today. Are you ready to rule? How would you rule? I think some of the women in here could say, I would rule that he ought to be beat to death with a bicycle chain. You're ready. See what I mean? Sure you're ready to rule because you know what's right and you know what ought to be done to expunge crime from our country because you know what God's Word says. So consider your calling, brethren. In 1 Peter, the second chapter, the ninth verse, we are called a royal priesthood. Did you ever see the movie called Spencer's Mountain many years ago about the family that scrimped and saved and had their idyllic kind of a house they were building up on the hill and all the sacrifice they went through? And finally the time came when one of that large family was going to go to college. And the bus came around the corner and down the hill and stopped. And there was dad and mom and all the brothers and sisters. And that young lad was there with his 
face shining and his little suitcase all packed. And they had scrimped and saved so that one of their number could break the mold of poverty and could go and get an education. And they were just swelling with pride. Our son is going to college. And that bus went off in a cloud of dust with him waving out the back of the bus. And the family was crying. And so was I. And so was everybody in the theater. Our son's going to college. What about a family who gets the letter in the mail and they say, our son has been selected to go to West Point. And they feel so absolutely grateful and filled with pride. Our son's going to a military academy. Our son is going to Annapolis. Our daughter is going to college. Someone got a job. Somebody got a raise. Somebody was reported. Somebody was elected. Somebody was selected. Somebody was honored. Does that make you happy? I think we don't consider our calling. I think we take it for granted. I don't think we believe in our calling. I think we merely suspect there might be one, maybe. I don't think we see it clearly. I think we merely guess at it. And I don't think we treasure it the way we should. I think sometimes we don't even think about it at all. Calling? Calling to what? What's your first answer? What is your very first answer? It's the very most important one, isn't it? Called to what? Well, first of all, to eternal life. Now, what's that worth? To be called to live forever? To be called to live throughout all eternity? My life has gone whizzing by so fast, I don't even know where it went. I got a flock of birthday cards and people are calling me young man and everything today because I turned 62 the other day. And I don't know where the last 10 went and I don't know where the 10 before that went. And it just seems like it is whizzing by and I don't have the power to slow it down or to stop it. But I look back and wonder about these last years and how quickly they've gone whizzing by and wonder how many more years there will be where I can maybe play a game of basketball or walk up a mountain to 12,000 feet. There will come a time when I simply won't be able to do that. But yet I look into the book of Isaiah when it talks about those who are old who will mount up with wings like eagles and that God will give the strength of youth like an Olympic athlete or a sprinter or a distance runner to an old elderly man or woman and that we will be renewed in our youth and our strength to have perpetual youth. How many searches have there been? How many fables? How many stories so many times told? How about Ponce de Leon and the Fountain of Youth? How about those who sought for fabled islands that never existed? Those who tried to create potions in chemical laboratories? Those who tried to stop the process of aging in every conceivable method from raw clams to mud packs to fabled Indian springs because they want eternal youth. When you see a woman, I know one want to tell you about her, but you walk down, if she would actually take off everything that's artificial, I'm not quite sure how much would be left. The wig would be over there, the false bottom, the false, uh, the falsies, everything else, all the rubber accoutrements and pale paraphernalia lying over there on the couch, and it would be a sort of a caricature of a person who is fighting the eternal battle of aging and not doing a very good job about it. Every time I see a woman over 70 with hair about that long, makeup all over, and uh, going along, you know, as if she's still trying to be a young girl, it's, I just look at her and sort of with pity. 
It's too bad that she can't just let it go on and be gray like it really is and maybe cut it because it's just in our society. Women basically don't wear hair down their back like that when it's gray and they're a little older. But many people seek to preserve youth and to stave off aging from the standpoint of vanity. There's nothing wrong with being old. We seem to hate that word in the United States. I'm not old. I'm a senior citizen. Right? No. I'm old. <laughs> well, only my grandson thinks I'm old. Now, a lot of you people don't think I'm old. A lot of you people older than I am think I'm young. It's all a matter of comparison. So called to what? Well, first of all, to eternal youth. I remember in hunting camp, I think, one time I got up and I felt real good. That's one of the rare times I remember when I got up and felt real good. Usually when I get up, it's with a groan, and I roll over and I feel for the bed stand, and I roll and get in just in a certain position to get my back to where I can get one leg out and get it on the floor. And then my wife hears me, and I'm, mm. what was that noise that came out of me? Well, it was a groan as a result of pain. And I sort of walked, stooped over. She says, you've got to go to a chiropractor and get your back worked on or you're going to be deformed. Well, forget it. I'm deformed. Anyway, I've got a lower chronic, uh, lower back problem. And I didn't used to have that. I've always been sway back like my father, but I never had all that pain. It's come along in these later years. So it's really wonderful on a rare occasion where you have a deep, full, black, dreamless night's sleep and wake up and feel good. Not an awful lot of people do. Not an awful lot of people sleep that well. You're called, first of all, to eternal life. I remember sermons that made me feel guilty because of that statement. I remember being very loudly challenged with the attitude, you are only trying to get eternal life. You're trying to get, and that's the wrong motive. You should have the give motive to want to give. Well, fine, except Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. And it's awful hard when you're drowning to say, save somebody over there. Usually it is, save me, isn't it, when you're drowning? When, when people are in need of help, they say, help. They don't say, help somebody. They need the help. So generally, if you're called to eternal life, and Jesus said, Ask and you shall receive, come unto me, ye that are weary and heavily laden, and I will give you rest. If I am lifted up, then will I draw all men unto myself. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. If the apostles, Paul says, run like you're in a race that you may achieve the crown. If he says, work out your own salvation, why should I feel guilty? Because I want it. Why should I feel guilty because I'm trying to get something which is eternal youth, living forever, salvation? Called to what? To eternal life first. But how about even more than that? Because believe it or not, the Bible says we in this age, if you, used to, if you want to use a religious phrase, it is this dispensation or this Christian period, but I shy away from those terms. In this age, that is just prior to the great tribulation, the heavenly signs, the day of the Lord, and the second coming of Christ. And the second coming of Christ, which will culminate in the first resurrection. This is, therefore, a special age. There is only one group of people who will ever live 
and who have ever lived at any time who will be alive humanly and physically in those last years before the second coming of Christ to whom will come true Paul's prediction in 1 Corinthians 15, 50-52 in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised and we shall be changed we shall be changed not only does God say to those of us who will be alive at that time perhaps to our children or grandchildren and we may be less than 20 years maybe less than 15 years away from that time and no one can really know you do not ever have to die. Now, you know, that's one great experience, they say. It's not an experience we look forward to, but yet it's one with which I think most of us have learned to cope, one we have learned to expect, one we have learned a great deal about. And we understand now that it's going to be just absolute oblivion, that there won't be any phones ringing, there won't be anybody nagging at us, nobody will be after us for something, nobody's dunning us for a bill, we won't be worried about our children or grandchildren, we'll just be in the deepest sleep, back won't hurt, you won't be anxious, you won't be nervous thinking I shouldn't have that cup of coffee at four o'clock, you'll just be sleeping so profoundly that you don't hear anything, you're not aware of anything. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you wake up again and there you are. And it's all in God's hands. So you don't have to worry about it. And death is not something you need to fear. But not only then is our calling to eternal life, but our calling is to be the very first part of the first fruits. The first fruits of God's harvest. is That first fruits are those people who are going to be alive humanly and physically at the coming of Christ and will not be in their graves, but will be alive to see it and to experience it. That's why the book of Revelation says, Blessed and holy are they that have part in the first resurrection, because on such there is no power of death. You never have to experience death at all. Not the first, not the second, never. How about a calling that is so special so unique and so precious that you never have to expect to die at all. What is the next thing about our calling? Not only to be the first of the first fruits, but how about the advance guard, like the palace guard, like an elite corps, like personal aides and staff of the king himself? How about those to whom the promises are given as Jesus himself made very clear in the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation, that those who are overcoming will be granted power over the nations and to rule with a rod of iron in the kingdom of God. Now, honestly, even though the last shall be first and the first shall be last, I think that has not to do so much with the responsibilities that they will exercise in the kingdom of God as it has to do with the chronology and has to do with the time of their salvation. There are going to be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, a great innumerable multitude, it says in Revelation 6 and 7, who will finally come to understand God is up there and Christ is coming down and woe is me, it's the end of the world and the day of the Lord, and they will fall to their knees and call out to God in broken-hearted repentance and God will hear them. 
And God says that people who are going to be shocked in an awareness that there is really a God, and all the Bible really was true, and all this putting it out of their mind, just going along, bumming along through life, pretending that God doesn't exist, is over now. He's really up there. Then when they get on their knees and say, Fall on us and hide us in the face of him that sitteth on the throne, God is going to hear them. The book of Revelation, chapter 7, says that he will seal them with his protection, his Holy Spirit, and a vast number, 12,000 of all the tribes of Israel, and an innumerable, unnumberable, uncountable multitude, who knows how many hundreds of thousands or millions, will call to God and repent and be converted, and in that instant will be saved, and God will have them in his kingdom. I don't think that says that they're going to be given a greater responsibility than those who have been in God's church and have been living this life of cuts and bumps and bruises, of heartache and headache and deprivation, of feeling thwarted and put off and frustrated, of all of the tears that we cry and the anxieties that we feel, and hopefully here and there another rough edge knocked off, another corner turned, another little bit of progress made, another thing overcome so that those who have lived and worked for decades of their lives and have become better people in God's Holy Spirit will literally be given better jobs, bigger responsibilities, more power, more luster, if you would. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, we'll take a little look at that because the Apostle Paul said a great deal about it. Then cometh the end, in verse 24, when he, Christ, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Christ is not finished with his work. Christ is still working. The end of Christ's work has not yet come. He is still working, and he is working through human instruments on this earth today, the church, which is an instrument in God's hands, to do his work on this earth. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, verse 25. And what does that include? Not only the beast and the false prophet of the nations of Europe and other nations that are to come along, but, as it says here, death and therefore Satan, who is, in a sense, the lord of the dead, of the underworld of the dead. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all under his feet, all things. But when he says all things are put under him, it's manifest that he has accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, verse 28, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all, or everything everywhere. Else what shall they do which are baptized? And as it should read, hooper in the Greek, to fill up the place of, to replace those who die, so the church perennially and perpetually renews itself through the generations to come. Not that somebody who is living is plunged into a baptismal pool on behalf of someone who has died, but those who are baptized humanly and physically now are baptized to fill up the place of those who, among our number, are continually dying of old age or of disease. If the dead rise not at all. Why are they then baptized for the dead, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? A little later on, he says, they will ask, how is God going to do all of this? Verse 35, how does he raise up the dead, and what are they going to look like? With what body do they come? Thou fool, that which you sow is not made alive, except it die. And that which you sow, you don't sow the body that shall be, whether you're thinking of a grain of a kernel of corn or a tiny little seed of a little kind of a 
microscopic fingernail clipping they look like, a lettuce seed. Those of you that have planted seed know what some of the seeds look like. But bare grain, it may chance of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as it has pleased him, and to every seed his own body. When you look at the greatest oak out there, it came from a tiny acorn about the size of your thumb. And here can be a huge oak that it would take three of us to link arms to stand to even encompass its girth. And yet it came from that tiny seed. God gives it a body that has pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same kind of flesh. There's one of men, the flesh of beasts, another of fish, another of birds. There are also heavenly or celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another of the moon, a lesser glory, but still splendor and glory. It wasn't long ago on a full moon I was out on my porch with my ten-power binoculars and had my wife come over and look at it. It's just once in a while, good reminder, you see the moon up there in a crystal clear night, get you a pair of binoculars and just stare at it and look at it, magnified about ten times. It is just almost awesome because we tend to forget that we live on this round world and we tend to forget the greatness and the glory of God and of his creation. Another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. That is, in brightness, in size, and in that sense, in power. So will it be in the resurrection of the dead. When we die, we stink. When we die, we decompose. When we die, we must be disposed of beneath six feet of soil, and that is as much a sanitary consideration as it is some other consideration having to do with philosophical or religious or spiritual concepts. It's a health law as much as it is some kind of a theological principle. Bury bodies, because if you don't, the corruption will result in the spread of disease. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in absolute incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. We can talk about the honorable dead, but there is nothing honorable about death. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Now that means brilliant, splendiferous, shining, radiant glory. It means spiritual power, but it also means awesome beauty. It is sown in weakness because it is dead, inert, lifeless. It is raised in power. That's the kind of power that you're able to project your power and your will not by a projectile fired out of a rifled barrel at 3,000 feet per second to maybe take the life of a deer or some animal only a couple of hundred yards away, but such power that a million miles away your word can make monstrous mammoth things happen. Almighty God came to this earth and said, Let there be light. And there was light, and said, let the dry land appear. And with a roar that would have absolutely split our ears if we could have been near, the continents began to heave themselves above the huge Stygian black oceans, and the continents began to appear as they are today. Almighty God says that we are to inherit power. It is, ray, it is sown a natural body, human, flesh, subject to decay. It is raised a spiritual body composed of spirit. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now my natural body, like a lot of yours, has all sorts of defects. 
Like an idiot, when I was in the Navy, I went out and got uh, too much alcohol aboard and went to a bunch of characters that would put ink in big old needles like a sewing machine and stick it in my arms and legs. And so I've still got that ink in there, and they're ugly. And I've told you before about the little old lady who was so shocked when I performed a baptism with my long sleeve shirts and cufflinks and went ahead and put her down in there with the water dripping off my shirt because after talking to her about all of these things about baptism, I wasn't about to roll up my sleeves and shock that poor little lady to death with these ugly tattoos on my body. Not only that, there are lots of other ills and aches and pains we could talk about. I imagine everybody in here has one or two things wrong with him or with her that you like to get fixed. We are, of course, a physical, natural body. How would you like to be composed of spirit? Think how well you could keep an eye on your son or your daughter. You could go along on their dates. Now, I know that that just makes them think, Oh, no, I don't want that to happen. Well, angels go along. God goes along. I mean, you know, God sees through rooftops. You don't hide behind the barn and smoke corn silk, as they did way back turn of the century. Now, of course, they're smoking something a whole lot stronger than that most of the time without God seeing exactly what is going on. But, you know, God does show in the prophecies that the time is going to come where even before someone is going to commit a sin, it says that your eye will see your teachers and that you will suddenly hear a voice that will say, Here is the way, walk ye in it. Now, wouldn't that be a shock? Two young people decide to stop and uh, get in the back seat. And about that time, a brilliant angel walks up, yanks the door up and says, No, you don't. Take her home right now. Yes, sir, Your Honor. And off he goes to go home. The angel going along to light the way. Or if not the angel, maybe mom or dad. You know, maybe mom or dad can appear that way. And that would be a wonderful time. Now it is that somebody is hundreds of miles away that you love, and families tend to be very widely scattered in our mobile society. You just have that many more people to worry about. My wife and I are expecting a couple of more grandchildren. Between now and the feast, we're going to have three, God willing. And we will love them. You ask yourself, does God love you? Well, you ask any parent if you have five kids, seven kids, or eight kids. Well, do you love the eighth as much as you did the fourth? Well, of course. Well, do you love the fourth as much as you did the second? Well, of course you do. You mean you love them all equally? Oh, absolutely. Well, what if you'd have 12? I'd love them too. What if you'd have 167? Well, she'd be pretty tired by then, but she'd still say, I would love all of them, all 167. You see, God has room to love all of his children. Now, I'm expecting I'm going to love my coming grandchildren. But I also have to face up to the fact I'm probably going to worry about them. Now, what does that do? It gives me more to worry about, more to be concerned about. Now, there's all kinds of people running around with capabilities of cutting themselves, burning themselves, falling off a porch, breaking something, breaking something, not only the crockery, but something in their arm or their finger or something. And we get concerned about that. Some of you got all kinds of children. Some of you got grandchildren. Some of you got great-grandchildren. Do you worry about them? Are you concerned about them? If the phone rings late at night, don't you say, <gasps> wonder who's hurt? Isn't it going to be wonderful to be able to take care of things like that and not worry about it? There is a spiritual body in verse 48, as is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy, and as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. There is 
the body of Jesus Christ that is called a spiritual organism, like a, a spiritual body that is not really a body of arms and legs and eyes and ears and all of the parts of a human physical body, but the analogy is there that widely separated people here and there that are a part of the church of God are the body of Christ. Now, I know that it's very difficult to be up all the time, very difficult. But it certainly is not difficult to be up when you are facing some kind of a challenge, when you're facing some kind of a trial or a test. Look at our Olympians over there of the sports participants, people on the American hockey team, people that are in the downhill skiing, the teams that are going to perform, male and female, in ice skating and so on. And look at how diligently they practice and how they want to be absolutely flawless and perfect in their performance when it's time to go for the goal. Do you think there is any camaraderie among them? Do you think when they get off the ice, they're back there in the locker room, they're over in their dormitories, they're sitting around at night and tomorrow's the big day, that the American hockey team would look at each other and grab somebody by the forearm or give a high five or slap somebody in the back and say, let's get them tomorrow, Joe, and really really pep one another up, encourage one another, have a little esprit de corps? Oh, I think they do. I know they do. There's a, it's the same, same way in, in basketball, any kind of a sport where a team is involved and it takes teamwork. And even if you're going to perform solo, other people in a similar sport are going to be there to wish you well, whether a gymnast or a downhill skier or a speed skater or what. I want you to turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, and take a look at what God's Word says about what we have to do with and a little bit of a vision of what awaits the church of God. The 11th chapter, you know, is a chronicle of some of the great heroes of God's church. They wouldn't have told you that when they were alive. Some of them, when they're resurrected, are going to come back and read these passages, Elijah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and many of them that looked for a city which has foundations, and they'll say, well, I suppose you could put it that way, but that wasn't really in my mind. We think of Elijah and how great he was, and yet we're told that he was a man of like passions with us, and Elijah was fearful, frustrated, angry, ready to give up on one occasion, said, I, only I am alive. You may as well just go ahead and kill me, God. There's nobody else around. And so the Bible tells us that Elijah was a man of like passions with us, and he would say, yes, you're right about that. But he'll be a little bit astounded about some of the things that were written about him. And if they were to read all of this, of how they quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword out of weakness, were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to fight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. This wonderful, beautiful latter half of the 11th chapter of Hebrews, it chronicles the great heroes of God's Word, the great heroes of the church, if you will, of the past. Seeing, chapter 12, verse 1, we also, that's those of us here in Tyler and along the tape program and all over the world and the Church of God International, are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. we got people out there that are so immature emotionally that one man wants to be a leader covets ordination, 
Somebody else comes in as a pastor to help the church. He's mad, moves off someplace else, and will give you 14 reasons why he is doing what he's doing, and the real reason is absolutely never spoken. Vanity, jealousy, lust, wants to be recognized, wants a position, and just doesn't like somebody very much. Isn't it amazing how many people who believe they are converted and believe they are undergoing change and believe that they are, as it says in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and 1 Corinthians 12, and talking about the church and about all the effectual working together of the body to the application or the edification of itself in love and so on, talking about how we're to grow into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and to grow up emotionally and to mature spiritually. And yet there are people in God's church who instantaneously can simply get so mad that they will do or say things that sound like some spiteful little child that needs a whipping, that, that just cannot control their tempers, have not grown up emotionally, will act irrationally. Ron and I have a lot of fun every now and then. We'll talk about some problem or other. He'll begin to laugh and chuckle and say, now there you go again. See, you're speaking rationally. And we got a problem here of emotion. We got a problem that is not rational. It is irrational. You got a problem here of vanity. You got a problem of resentment. You got a problem of human emotion. And you're trying to talk about now why would it be thus and such and so and so? And you're dealing with rational thought. And the person who's acting that way isn't acting rationally. True. We talk about things like that probably several times a week. Seeing we're compassed with such a cloud of witnesses. Let's lay aside these things and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race. We're like Olympians. We're like the track team. We're like the hockey team. We're like the basketball team. We've got to help each other, but we're also, in a sense, in competition. There is a competitiveness about the Christian life. We've got to overcome our own appetites. We've got to overcome human nature. We've got to overcome the world and all of its enticements. We've got to overcome Satan the devil and his minions, his rotten, evil demons. We've got to overcome all sorts of things that are even spiritual in nature. Run with patience the race that is setting, that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, listen to this language, for the joy that was set before him endured the stake, Greek word stauro, upright pale, despising the shame. And oh, how we're, we tend to whimper and to caterwaul and complain about the shame. Mistreatment. Have you ever been wrong? Is there anybody in this room who has ever been wrong? Are there people here who in the last two, three, four years aren't sure you've ever been wrong about anything? There are some people who are just never wrong. That's all. Never, 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 never wrong. You can't even suggest that they're wrong about anything. It says, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Now, I remember I got in a fight probably in the eighth grade. It gave me this little kind of an irregular spot here on my chin. And I don't think I did that much damage to him as I remember. But he helped change my physiognomy around a little bit. But I don't, I think that's probably the last time anybody slugged me one. And I really don't remember, I, I probably have been spit at, but I don't think they could reach me. It was like, you know, the time during the Nixon administration when, when uh, President Nixon and Pat went down to 
Central America and South America, remember? And they told a joke about the two fellows down there. He said the other day, Pedro, I was arrested for speeding. He said, oh, my, how fast were you going? You don't understand, Pedro, I was arrested for speeding on Mr. Nixon. <laughs> and they told that Nixon joke back during those days. Uh, I have not had anybody come up to me and just uh, let one fly right in my eye, you know, spit in my face. But Jesus did. Now, I know I can get some of you awful mad by just jostling you a little bit. But Jesus Christ endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, and we're to consider that, to think about that, to take that into account, lest you be wearied and faint, that is, give up, be deterred in your minds. You have not resisted unto blood striving against sin. Fact. That is axiomatic, isn't it? You haven't? And I have it. You have not resisted unto blood. You haven't. But you can get mighty upset resisting unto money, costing you something. A lot of people get mighty upset with having to go to a holy day, go to the Feast of Tabernacles, save God's festival tithe, pay God's tithe faithfully. You get mighty upset sometimes. We have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. You have forgotten the exhortation that speaks unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you're rebuked of him. Correct me, O God, prayed David. Rebuke me in thy kindness. It shall be as oil running down over my head and my beard. But rebuke me not in thine hot displeasure, lest you bring me to nothing. Jeremiah prayed, Correct me, O Eternal. Continually we read how God chastens and corrects everyone he loves. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Do you hate your child if you chasten him? Punish him or her? No, you love. Scourgeth, harsh words, strong words, spanks, with a switch or something, every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. Why was a father, why would a father chasten a son? Because he loves him so much, he wants him to do the right thing and to do the thing that the father knows with wisdom and experience is far better. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards, illegitimate children, and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? A little later then he says, verse 12, Wherefore, lift up the hands that hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And finally, in verse 18, You are not come unto the mount that might be touched, that is Sinai, where you could walk up and see it and stand upon it, and that burned with fire that terrified the people, nor unto blackness and darkness, uh, darkness and tempest, when they saw that huge thundercloud and the lightning and the thunder, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. They said, don't let God speak to us, but let Moses be our spokesman. They could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. His knees were knocking. His face was ashen. He was terrified. But you, you don't see this, 
But here it says, you are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city, not over there in Israel, in Jerusalem, the old ugly city of such strife and pain and suffering and death, but unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to a countless company of spirit beings known as angels, to the general assembly from Jamaica to Oregon, from New Zealand to Africa, from France to England, and from Germany to the United States, to the general assembly scattered all around the world, members of God's church, and church of the firstborn, who is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, which are written in heaven. Your name is written down. Your name and address, who you are, all about you. Your name is legibly written there, where an angel could walk up and say, let, let me see. Vietnam veterans, buddies who had a buddy who died, it's probably the most moving experience of any of America's monuments, not only because of its location, but because of its design and what it contains, is to go to Washington, D.C., and not too far away down that mall, and to go down in an area there, you're not within about two or three blocks of the Smithsonian Institute, and walk out in a park-like area and kind of walk down, and here is that long black marble monument with the name etched deeply in solid black granite. It really is not marble, but black granite. The name, middle initial, full name of every young American man who lost his life in Vietnam. Parents will make pilgrimages. Why? brothers will make pilgrimages and go to Washington and take their finger and trace their finger on that name or take a piece of paper and a pencil and trace it and bring it back and frame it because that is a memorial and their name is written there. They died in Vietnam. Your name is written in heaven. Angels who can actually go there can look and find a name. Does it glow? Uh, how is it written? Is it written on spiritual essence? Is it, is it some kind of paper? Is it stone? Is it granite? Is it beautiful, translucent stone of some kind? And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men, which God has preserved, which God owns, who knows whether the spirit of man returneth to God that gave it and the beast of the earth from which it came, as it says through Again, Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. Who knows one way or the other? But the spirit does not die. It is absolutely asleep. It is unconscious. But everything that has been built into that spirit, the new spiritual creature in Christ, is intact. And God has it in his hands. To the spirits of just men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Moses, so many more. The Apostle Paul of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him and spake on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth, Mount Sinai, at the giving of the law, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifying the removing of those things that are shaken, 
as of things that are made, that is, earthly material things, even this earth and its mountains, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain, spiritual things. Wherefore, we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace. That means unmerited forgiveness. It also means graciousness. It means goodliness or goodness. It means mercy. Whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. And men gave it a chapter break. God didn't originally let brotherly love continue. That's probably a good place to end the chapter because that is what it is dealing with here. Do you see your calling, brethren? Do you see it clearly? Do you recognize what it is? Is it merely so much spiritual salt and pepper, just Garner Ted spreading it on thick, to say that we are part of an elite core, if you will, a special people, a chosen royal priesthood, the first of the first, including people who may be given the greatest blessing that could ever be imagined, never having to die, but simply looking up and seeing the brilliant light that is Christ returning to the earth and feeling if there's something to feel or hearing if there's something to hear, experiencing in one way or another an old, tired body suddenly, instantaneously becoming a glittering spirit body filled with power. And instead of putting out a leg and slowly creeping along, taking a halting, limping step, simply put out a leg and leap a hundred yards straight up into the air to meet Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who comes with clouds back to this earth. There are entirely too many people who like to play church, who like to play politics, play organization. Too many tired old Christians just sort of waiting it out. To some, an organization, an entity, a group, is everything. The people out there, money, scope, the size of it, institutions, buildings. To other people, if they really look at their calling and they were to study and really believe what we just read in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, of all of those things to which we have come, the general assembly of the church of the firstborn and names that are written into heaven, in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, Perhaps we can really see our calling. And if we can, then is it wrong to have the same feeling of camaraderie, of love, of encouraging one another, of having the same desire to give one another a pat on the back and to say, we hope you do better, to have that brotherhood kindled, to have the same spirit that a championship basketball or hockey team would have, a kind of an esprit de corps, that gives them what is known in sports as momentum. You ever seen a professional ball game or a college ball game when the momentum shifts and all of a sudden it looks like people who are down 12 points, you can feel it, you can see it happening, and the ones that suddenly have been the underdogs look like they're going to get wiped out, they just suddenly get a feeling of confidence and they get momentum and the other guys can't even breathe, they can't do anything right, and in just a matter of seconds, a minute and a half or two, 14 or 20 points have been scored and the team that was leading only minutes before is down, and the other one comes on and wins the game. I've seen that hundreds of times in my lifetime. I've been a part of it on a court, on a floor. I've experienced it from both ends. I've been a part of the losing team, and I've been there when I felt the momentum helped me to be a part 
of the winning team. Let me tell you, it's a lot more fun to be a part of the winning team. So remember what my little grandson Michael said when he learned the simple words of the song he heard on television. Don't worry, be happy. God says, happy are you, even if you are persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ. And the apostles who were beaten and whipped went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Remember what I said about the Queen Mother talking to Prince Charles? I think we take it casually for granted. It's almost embarrassing to some of us. We don't want to hold our calling up and to give it the spiritual importance it really has. We want to make light of it, keep it hidden, be a little embarrassed about it. Just yesterday, Benny and I and another friend were talking, and he was telling me about the first time he ever met Benny, and how back during that day, we in the church, if someone would ask, well, what do you do? Or, what is your church? Oh, well, where's your church over here? It's sort of fundamentalist. What, what, what did you say? I remember that so well. For years and years, people would not speak up because they didn't have that conviction. They didn't have that absolute, ebullient, joyful awareness of the value of their calling and appreciate it and accept it and thank God for it and be happy as a result of it. Why? Why, to the point of your deathbed, would you ever be truly fearful and unhappy? I've seen examples of that. I think some of our beloved brethren have given us some examples of that in recent times where we've learned of people who were members of this church and who were always up and happy and who died exactly the same way and were tremendous examples to God's church because no matter the trials they faced, they knew their calling. They knew they were safe in the hands of God, and they knew they were saved, and they knew they were the first of the first fruits, and they knew exactly what the future holds. And you can't be unhappy when you know that. So don't worry. Be happy.